We are in John's Gospel, chapter 20, and we'll be looking at verses 19 to 29 this morning. John chapter 20, as we continue our series through the Gospel of John. Beginning at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Well, let us ask God to bless his word preached in our midst this morning. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and how clear it is, how we are not dealing with Uh, Words that cannot be understood, but when the Holy Spirit accompanies the faithful preaching of your word, we can expect a great blessing from above. And we pray that blessing for each and every one here, for Jesus' sake. Amen. One of the uh, things I like to do in Scripture when I read is, is look at the personality traits of some of God's servants. And you can pick up on certain personality traits among uh, the disciples for sure. And uh, while uh, Peter is the one who gets the most attention because of his impetuousness, his boldness, uh, there are other disciples where you get hints of their personality. And it led me to think about, you know, if I could change something about my own personality in terms of the traits, what would it be and uh, as you begin to develop a list in your mind right now, let me assure you it's probably not as long as my own list, uh, but I'm probably still not self-aware enough to capture all of the things that need to be changed. But there is one that really struck me as I was meditating and looking at this section in God's Word, and it occurs to me that 
Uh, Doubting Thomas, as he is popularly called, although I'm not convinced that's the best name for him, uh, is more better termed pessimistic Thomas. And I think pessimism is a a certain personality trait that some of us probably uh, know all too well. There are optimists, and they uh, see the good in many things and see the good outcome in many things. There are pessimists, and pessimists like to use euphemisms and uh, sometimes say, no, I'm not a pessimist, I am merely a realist. And uh, they think they can get off the hook that way. Uh, But pessimism can be a sin because when it's attached to unbelief and a lack of faith in God's sovereignty and His promises, you can be sinfully pessimistic. And so I think if I could uh, alter, and I do believe we can alter our personality traits insofar as where there is sin, we can put it to death and replace it with the truth and God's grace. Pessimism is one that needs to be dealt with. Now, as we go through the text, we'll eventually get to Thomas, but you'll find that Thomas is actually missing. And uh, the earlier references to Thomas, if you go through John's Gospel and the other Gospels, it's not that he's so much a doubter, but that he's a little bit obtuse at times, as are many of the disciples when it comes to understanding the things of God. Now, As the text tells us, and you can see it there, on the evening of that day, that is the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, Sunday, the doors are still locked and the disciples are uh, living in fear. Now, why would they be living in fear of the Jews? If the Jews' whole intention to solve their problems in society was to have Jesus of Nazareth put to death, and indeed He was publicly put to death, and he was publicly placed in a grave, why would the disciples need to fear anymore? They're certainly not going to follow a dead Messiah because a dead Messiah is a failed Messiah. They're not going to follow a dead Messiah. The Jewish people who were against Jesus are also satisfied because the person they wanted dead is now dead. Why are they living in fear? They're living in fear because the tomb is now empty And there are no doubt very strong, incredible rumors and even testimonies that the person that had raised Lazarus from the dead, the person who had walked on water, the person who had fed the 5,000, that same person has now been raised from the dead as he predicted he would be. And that means that the Jewish religious authorities who are against Jesus and his followers are now even more so against them, if in fact this is true. So they're living in fear. Now, as we continue to look at the text, you'll notice that it is the Lord's Day, and they are in fear. And notice what else happens. Jesus, miraculously it appears, came and stood among them, The doors are locked, but he just appears and said to them, and I want you to think about another character in the scripture who appears before his brothers, almost to them miraculously. Who would that be? Joseph. Joseph, whom they had sold into slavery. Joseph, whom Jacob thought is no doubt 
been torn to pieces, Joseph appears before his brothers. And Joseph actually reminds them of their sin. He said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Joseph reminds his brothers of their sin. And Thomas Goodwin, in one of his books, makes this illuminating comment. He says, here Christ excels even Joseph, who was a godly man, and doesn't actually remind his disciples of their faithlessness, of their unbelief, of their cowardly ways. He simply says to them, peace be with you. And should not the Prince of Peace say that? Should not the one who preached in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, live out that reality? This is what he says, peace be with you. And he is the one who understands better than anyone that when one puts faith in Jesus Christ, they now have, as Romans 5 tells us, peace with God. And so the first declaration of the Messiah, of Jesus, to his disciples as he appears to them is one of peace. Because before you can have any relationship with God, any blessing from Him, any enjoyment of Him, you must be in a relationship where there is peace and not hostility. Peace be with you. This is not just a casual greeting as you might find in the first century. And people often would say, peace be with you. This is the establishment of real and true and everlasting peace. Now, he does something else. In verse 20, after he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. He showed them who he was. He showed them his scars. And do you know why uh, young new preachers are not usually very good? And I don't mean that in the sense that they can't regale their audiences with rhetoric and speak well from the pulpit and uh, have a good flow of this and that and good stories. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about why you have to take what they say. As long as it's God's truth, you must believe it. But you also have to remember that they should get better. And why should they get better? Because you need scars you need battle scars. I remember going, uh, just got my PhD. I was in Grand Rapids, and you wouldn't believe in Grand Rapids. There's all these churches and seminaries everywhere. I mean, it's like candy stores. And uh, there was a seminary there, and, and the, the president of the seminary was interested in having me come be a professor. And I was going for lunch that day to uh, a place uh, near Grand Rapids in Holland, Michigan. It's about half an hour away, I think. And it was with a Reformed Baptist preacher who had basically retired called Albert Martin. Some of you might have heard of Albert Martin. Great, powerful Reformed Baptist preacher. And I told him what had happened earlier that day. And he said, oh no, Mark. And he has this low voice. And if you listen to him, he's kind of got a preacher voice. But I like him anyway. You know preacher voices, right? Oh no, Mark. You need to stand before your students with the scars, with the battle scars. And uh, I never really gave it much consideration after that, because he's absolutely right. Jesus is standing before his disciples. He's just said, peace be to you. And he's able to show them the scars, why that is the case. Do you see how important that is? You don't just go around saying, peace be to you, peace be to you, brother. Oh, peace everywhere. The world does that. 
The world does that. They do other signs too, but they do that. And they, they, I assume, mean it. But what do they really have to offer? When Jesus says, peace be to you, He's saying it with the scars of one who took away sin, who has taken away hostility, who has been raised from the dead, who actually can say, peace be to you, and mean it. And then He does something most interesting. Because... What happened in the case of Christ happens now to His disciples. As the Father has sent Me into the world to preach the gospel of repentance and forgiveness of sins, even so I am sending you. And how do we know that's the interpretation? Because look at what happens in the following verses. When He had said this, He breathed on them. And He said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the sign of new life. Remember in Genesis 2-7, God breathed into Adam the breath of life. And Ezekiel, when he's preaching in chapter 37, it's a very moving account from verses 7-10, to 10, you see the way in which uh, the idea of breath and the Spirit and power. And so what Jesus is doing is He's conveying power to them. Now, we have to ask ourselves this question, are they receiving the Holy Spirit for the first time? And the answer is obviously no. When Jesus ascended on high, we are told that He received, in Acts 2.33, the promised Holy Spirit. Had Jesus received the Holy Spirit before then? Obviously, yes. We're told He did. He received the Spirit without measure, John tells us in John chapter 3, verse 34. So, this is not to say that the disciples are receiving the Holy Spirit for the first time, but rather that this is such a momentous occasion that there are times where God will pour out His Spirit in greater measure with a distinct purpose. And the distinct purpose is that they would go forth and preach the Gospel in the power of the Spirit. And so this is a sort of mini-Pentecost before Pentecost. And so He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Why? Because you're going to go and preach the Gospel. Now, if you take verse 23 in the abstract, you just take verse 23 and you put it on your wall at home or you get it tattooed on your arm or whatever else you feel like doing, you could get yourself into a little bit of trouble. And the reason I say that is because in the abstract, it basically could read like, if you go around and say, I forgive your sins, I don't forgive your sins, I forgive your sins, I don't forgive your sins, it would appear completely arbitrary on the part of the apostles. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And you could say, well, this is a terrifying prospect. The apostles could come to me and say one thing, or they could say another. But clearly what we understand from the book of Acts and what we understand from the greater revelation that God has given us is that they are offering forgiveness to those who repent. And those who repent will receive forgiveness. Those who do not repent, those who have stiff neck, those who turn away from the gospel, they will not receive forgiveness. So these words are meant to be understood in terms of their meaning, not just simply what they say. And so they are forgiven. Now, there is this character called Thomas in verses 24 to 29. And now Thomas... 
you will see, one of the twelve called the twin. He's called Didymus. Um, he was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And that's quite interesting when you read that. Um, so, the other disciples uh, have told him, we have seen the Lord. Uh, but what does he do in response? Now remember, this isn't so much doubting Thomas as I think pessimistic Thomas. And he was not with them. So I think instead of calling him doubting Thomas, we should call him pessimistic, doubting, missing Thomas. You know, uh, back when people used to write in newspapers ads for themselves, single white male looking for single white female, you could just say Thomas, uh, you know, uh, doubting, missing in action, and pessimistic, looking for uh, a lady of similar interests. Where is he? Well, notice that in the text, he is not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples tell him, we have seen the Lord. These are men he trusts. These are men he's lived with. He knows. Why would they make this up? It's a crazy thing to make up unless it's actually true. But he actually seems to think that they are the ones who are a bit obtuse in the matter and doesn't believe them. So notice his response to them. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never Believe. I love the forcefulness of the disciples at times. Peter, even if I have to die with you, or I will never deny you. These are all or nothing men, right? I like that. You know, it's, it's all or nothing. There's no half measures with these lads. Unless I am able to place my hand in his side, which is a bit strange when you think about it, I will never believe. And so some scientific inquiry is required by Thomas. Now, a week later, after he has made this great declaration, the disciples were in the house again. But this time Thomas is with them. And uh, you have to wonder why Thomas wasn't with them in the first place. Why wasn't he with them initially? In one of their greatest moments of need, and fear, where they really had no one else in the world but each other. There you have Thomas who has drifted off into oblivion. And I find it very hard to believe that he had somewhere more important to be. But now he's with them. And you know what's interesting? Thomas says these words. The doors are locked and Jesus appears again miraculously and stood among them and said again, peace be with you. Now, he says peace be with you three times to emphasize a point as he does, but he also says peace be with you with Thomas present so that Thomas may also know that Christ comes in peace despite his doubting, and Christ knew about his doubting. How do we know that Christ knew about Thomas's doubting? Well, notice what he says in verse 27. Thomas doesn't say, show me the scars so that I can believe. Jesus says to Thomas, 
put your finger here. I know what you said. Was Jesus physically present when Thomas made that declaration? No. But he nevertheless knew exactly what Thomas was saying. And so he appears before him, and before Thomas has a chance to even speak, he says, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Do not be unbelieving, but be believing. And this is remarkable because Thomas has a chance now to respond. And we think, well, it should be automatic. People should be able to just see Jesus and believe. But it's not quite that simple because if you read Luke's Gospel and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, whether it's a parable or or however we're to understand the story, it's quite complex. What we find is that the man wishes to uh, have a message go back to his family about the torment he is going through. And we are told by Luke, as Christ is giving us this illustration, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So Thomas isn't necessarily convinced simply because Jesus is standing there. Thomas is convinced because he has also been granted the faith to believe in the one who is standing there. And we know that by his response. He says, my Lord and my God. Now, my Lord is something that you might expect a first century Jew to say to someone who has apparently been raised from the dead. My Lord. It's a phrase you can use on many different levels. But to tell us that this is the highest level of lordship, he adds, my Lord who is also my God, and my God who happens to be my Lord. And no one would ever dream as a first century Jew of saying to someone in the flesh, my God, unless that person they believe to be truly God. Imagine saying to a man in front of you, my God, as a first century Jew. And that's precisely what Thomas does because Thomas has been transformed. Now, uh, we had a furious debate last night in our uh, discussion about uh, what happened when Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Did he actually do that? And on the one hand, uh, Josh uh, and some other nefarious character, his brother, um, said they believe he did. They believe he did. I wasn't so sure, so I went to that great Baptist, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and read what he had to say. And uh, Spurgeon was of the belief that it was simply the appearance of Christ saying this that would have melted Thomas the way he did and made that confession. And whether Spurgeon or whether Josh, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'll be honest. What's important is not so much whether we can find out if Thomas was able to somehow reach out, but what Thomas was able to say about the one who had been crucified, the one he had given up hope on, the one that he thought was a failed Messiah, the one that caused him to go into isolation himself, even away from the other disciples, and yet now he is prepared to say, my Lord And my God, there is no other explanation except the resurrection. Now a few points uh, as we close. 
I was reading uh, J.C. Ryle. I always like to read Ryle because I can understand him. And uh, he, he makes this point about Thomas that Thomas missed out, missing Thomas, by not being with God's people. And he really, I don't think, as I said, had any good reason not to be with his disciples on the first occasion where Christ manifested himself to them. And what did they do when he manifested himself to them? They rejoiced. They were filled with joy. And don't imagine this to be, as the text says, they were filled with joy in sort of a British sense, you know? Oh, how wonderful. How very nice to see you here, my Lord. I don't know what it was like, but it must have been overwhelming the joy. What a 180 of all of their emotions, of their experience to actually see the risen Christ. And Thomas missed out on that. He wasn't with God's people. And Ryle makes this point. He says, the very sermon that we needlessly miss, not that we needed to miss because we are incapacitated, But the very sermon we needlessly miss may contain a precious word in season for our souls. We little know how dependent our spiritual health is on little regular habitual helps and how much we suffer if we miss our medicine. That phrase that I've I've learned the last maybe decade, I don't know how old it is, hangry. Some of you maybe get hangry. I, I don't get hangry. I'm pessimistic. I'll admit to that and a few other things. But hangry, no, that's my wife. It's not funny. <laughs> and you miss a meal and you, you, you need to eat. And you miss another meal and another meal and another meal. And you're emaciated and you feel it. And somehow we think as Christians we can just needlessly miss being with the Lord's people, needlessly miss being under His Word, needlessly miss being blessed by the singing and the preaching and the reading and the praying and the eating and drinking of all that He has to offer. And we somehow in our pride think we'll be okay. We are far too ready to give up the spiritual blessing that God is so willing to offer And it's to our detriment at times what we have missed out on already in our life because of spiritual slothness. Don't be like missing Thomas. There's another incident uh, here that requires a bit of investigation, at least as I read it, and that is that Jesus still, after the resurrection, there's so much emphasis upon the scars, upon the feet, upon the side. Why is that? He's been raised from the dead. Surely you're thinking as we've been reading this, resurrected body, why is there even scars still present? And that's a, a very good question. Now, I think we can say it, it certainly identifies him for who he is. Now, we all have particular, maybe, scars that we can say, you know, this is a part of my identity. I, I remember as a young man, I maybe 11 or 12, going to play tennis. I t- took a shortcut, fell on a rock, sliced my hand open. There's the scar right there. And uh, I was pretty alarmed at what I saw inside of my hand, I'll be honest. And I go up to my mother and my first 
question to her as I'm crying is, am I going to die? And to bless my mother's heart, she didn't really alleviate me of that fear by the way she reacted. And, you know, some people make situations better, some not so much. I still sometimes wonder if I'm going to die because of that, the way she reacted. But we have this scar, and I have another scar that allegedly my mother also didn't do too well of when I split my head open. And I know it's me because I have these scars. It's our identity. But, you see, these scars that Jesus retains, these are not scars that are just mere unfortunate events in his life. These are his scars of glory. These are ornaments of his majesty. Why does he still retain them? Because they are not scars in the abstract. We're not going to retain our scars in the sense of the fallenness of this world and all of those things. But Jesus retains these scars because they are his glory. I apologize, I really do, for mentioning rugby for two weeks in a row, but it's better than soccer if you think about it. And I was thinking not so much about our friend Cyril lifting the trophy, but about the players standing on the stage as they're getting their medals. And one of the players, it really struck me, he's getting his medal. And as the medal's being put around his neck, you see this massive eye with its puffed out black eye. And you see blood trickling down from his head and you see how the uniform is dirty and sometimes ripped and when you're a fan those things are beautiful they're the scars of what they went through for the victory they're not things to be ashamed of they're things to be proud of and so Christ naturally because the scars were the scars whereby he took upon himself the sins of all of his people these are things to be proud of these are things to show and say these are my ornaments of glory the scars that killed him are the scars that have given us life and they're the most beautiful scars anyone could ever see why would you want to hide these things why would you want to hide the very scars that have given the life to these disciples. Uh, one of the deacons, we'll, we'll call him Keith. Uh, he, he saw me this morning and uh, I, he's been doing these Bible uh, theology nights. And I think it's improving his theology, to be honest. Because this morning he said to me, uh, he is risen. And before I had the chance to say anything, Keith goes, and he is ascended. And I was like, that's very good, Keith. So next time someone says to you, he has risen, and you're supposed to say, he has risen indeed, you should say, and he has ascended. Just throw them for a loop. Now, he is ascended. And the scars he retains are not just for your sake and my sake in the sense that we can see them as his disciples did, he takes these scars to his father and these scars are of such a nature that he wouldn't even need to say a word but merely present himself before the father with these scars and he will receive whatever he requests. 
When he goes to the Father on your behalf, he's not just going and saying, I'll put in a good word for you. He's going to the Father on your behalf as one who has the scars with which to say to the Father, I have died for this person. I have died for that person. And who is the Father then to look upon the scars himself? Not just you and I, but himself and deny him. So the scars are for your sake, but they are also for Christ's sake as He intercedes, as He has ascended, and as He intercedes for you and I. But there's one last point. Those scars at this point in time until Christ returns are scars of mercy, they're scars of love, they're scars of patience, they're scars of grace, they're scars of hope, of joy, But one day when He returns, those scars will, for many people, no longer offer out that hope, that joy, that love. Those will actually be scars of judgment because of those who consistently and habitually and persistently rejected the Gospel, rejected those scars, rejected the love that was offered, and Christ will be able to stretch out His hands in judgment with those scars to people who would not believe. And it will become their condemnation. And just as He says to Thomas, stop being an unbeliever, but be a believer. So we need to be confronted all of the time because you know what the problem with our pessimism is? Our pessimism is a fruit of unbelief. And our unbelief needs to be constantly reevaluated in light of the Gospel. Nothing could make one more pessimistic in a certain sense than seeing their Messiah crucified on the cross and yet nothing could be further from the truth. It's the cross that changes your pessimism into hope. It's the cross that changes your guilt over your sin into peace with God. It is the scars of Christ that should alter everything about who you are. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we pray that we will put our faith in the One who was crucified, but also raised from the dead the One who has ascended and is now in glory. And we ask that we will have all of the unbelief that remains in us changed into belief, into hope, because Christ deserves nothing less from us. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.